Well, in December of last year, my son Zachary stood before a judge in U.S. federal court. Now, Zachary wasn't there because he had been arrested, thankfully, Uh, but he was there because he was serving as the lead prosecuting attorney in a mock trial competition. And as Zachary stood before the judge, not being a trained lawyer, he had spent weeks upon weeks with real lawyers uh, prosecuting DAs and with uh, defense attorneys to learn how to present a case to a judge and jury. He and his co-counselors had learned all about procedures and evidentiary rules that are in place to protect the accused uh, until otherwise proven guilty. And they learned that if you violate these procedures, these rules, that you can have a mistrial declared. And they also learned that even if a verdict is given, it can be vacated or set aside. And as we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 22, what we're going to be looking at is a series of trials that Jesus endured. And as we look at these trials, what we're going to see is that in each and every one of them, every single law, every single procedure that could have been violated was violated. Uh, Some uh, law experts have said there have been up to 70 procedural violations uh, as you look at the trials that took place with Jesus. It takes the, the meaning of a, uh, the travesty of justice and railroading somebody to a new level as you look at the trials that Jesus endured. He was hauled before illegal assemblies. He was falsely accused. He was subjected to verbal and physical abuse. And ultimately, he was sentenced to death by a spineless politician who had already declared Jesus innocent on numerous occasions. And as we look at these trials today, I don't want you just to say, well, that's interesting, or I learned something new about legal process. What I want us to see today is how great God's love was for us, what it was that God was willing to endure, how all these laws and procedures were broken. And the reason for that, men and women, boys and girls this morning, is because each and every one of us has broken God's law ourselves. Each and every one of us was guilty of a penalty of death. And it's why Jesus, because he loved us so much that he was willing to endure these things and ultimately endure the suffering on the cross in order to die to pay that penalty of death that we owed for our sins. A few weeks ago, we began looking here in Luke chapter 22. You remember that we started with Jesus celebrating the Passover, what we call the Last Supper with his disciples. And we saw as he walked the disciples through the Passover that he held up a cup And he told them that this was the cup of the new covenant. It represented his blood that was about to be shed in order to wash away our sins. And from there, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw how he agonized in prayer. And as he was there praying, we read in Luke 22, 42, where he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And yet not my will, but your will be done. Soon after, the mob arrived, led by Judas, who we saw betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And then Peter whipped out a sword and made a feeble attempt to fight off the mob. And then ultimately, uh, he fled. Jesus was arrested. He was dragged to the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. And it was there that we looked at the denial of Peter two weeks ago. And as we pick up today in Luke chapter 22, verse 63, we're going to see the trials that are taking place on that night. Luke twenty two sixty three begins by telling us, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him, and they were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him. 
blasphemy. Now here it's just the tip of the iceberg as we talk about injustices. Here he's being openly beaten and abused when he's undergoing these trials. There are all kinds of abuses taking place. Uh, If you look at John's account, remember there are four Gospels, and in John chapter 18 and verses 12 through 23, there we're told that Jesus was first taken before Annas. Now Annas is a guy who had been the previous high priest. Caiaphas is the high priest at this point, but Annas had been the one before. And at this point, Annas has zero legal formal standing in the process. And yet what happens is they take Jesus before this previous high priest because he has past relationships, he has influence. And the Jewish authorities want a certain verdict rendered, and so they bring Annas in in order to give the green light to leverage his relationships in order to convict Jesus. Now, as I said, Caiaphas is the high priest in office at this point, and as we saw in Luke twenty-two fifty-four, Jesus was then brought to his house. And uh, it's, it's there that we looked at the denial of Peter that took place two weeks ago. Now, Matthew's account gives us a little more information about what is happening that night, what is happening in the courtyard, uh, including who else is there. And there's also an additional trial that we're going to talk about here in a moment that Matthew tells us about that we don't see in Luke's account. And the reason we don't find it in Luke's account, I want you to remember there are four Gospels. And as we talked about when we began our series in, in the book of Luke, that God had the different Gospels written to a different primary audience. We saw in Luke 1-3 that this letter that we've been studying uh, for the past year was written to a Roman official. And because of that, the things that Luke emphasizes would be of interest to a Roman audience. It's why the two trials we're about to talk about uh, that Luke gives us information about are so important. But we don't find this additional trial Matthew records because to the Romans, they didn't care. The Romans didn't care about the Jewish process and procedures, which is why Luke emphasizes for the the Roman audience what is happening but leaves out what Luke covers. Now, remember, Matthew's account was written primarily for the Jews. And so the Jewish legal proceedings were of great interest to the primary audience that Matthew is writing to, and that's why he gives us additional information. Like if you look at Matthew 26, 57... He says, those who had seized Jesus led them, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Now, if you were a Jew reading that, you would have said, whoa, 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 this, this isn't supposed to be happening. You've got the high priest, you've got the elders, you've got the scribes. These are the, remember, the religious lawyers, the Sanhedrin is a word that means 70. And the Sanhedrin was the Jewish high supreme court. And it was made up of a group of religious leaders and legal experts and others that were the the legal experts of the day in Judaism. And when we read here that they're, they're meeting in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the whole Sanhedrin has come together, the Jews would have said, this isn't supposed to be happening. You see, what should be happening is what you see here in Luke twenty-two sixty-six. In Luke twenty-two sixty-six, it says, when it was day, we're going to talk about why that's important, the council of elders, that's the group we're talking about here, the Sanhedrin, it says, when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both with chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber. Do you see that? 
You see, there was a place that's west of the Western Wall, which is where the Sanhedrin met. It would be like when we went to the U.S. federal courthouse for this trial. There was a place that the Jewish Supreme Court was supposed to hear cases. It wasn't to be done in the dark of night in the courtyard of the high priest. Uh, Jewish law said that all Jewish court cases were to be heard between the morning and evening sacrifices. And the reason for that was to keep a secret trial from happening like Matthew is telling us took place. If you look at Matthew 27, 1, it says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. That is the trial that Luke records for us. But as I told you, Matthew has an additional trial that he tells us took place that Luke doesn't record because the Romans didn't care about it. And that secret trial is found in Matthew 26, 57 and following. There it says, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in. And he sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on came forward two witnesses who said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, not only is there this secret nighttime trial that's illegal, but everything I just read was illegal as well. You see, in terms of uh, the judges, the council of elders, this Sanhedrin court, they were never to be the prosecuting attorneys. They were never to be calling witnesses. Their role was to hear the evidence. And yet we see they're driving the trial. They're bringing in what turns out to be bogus witnesses. The Levitical law set a standard, an evidentiary standard of two witnesses who had to agree in order for testimony to be accepted. You can see that in Deuteronomy 17.6 and in 1915. But Matthew tells us they couldn't reach that evidentiary bar because these people are lying and they're contradicting themselves. So every witness they bring in, there's, there's no charge that they're able to stick against Jesus. And because of that, they then go on and break another part of the law, which is where Matthew 26, 62 and 63 tells us, the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Now, many of us have heard of something called the Fifth Amendment, right? What's the Fifth Amendment? It says you have a right against self-incrimination. You can take the Fifth, you can remain silent. Well, Jewish law had the same thing in place. No defendant could be compelled to testify against himself. And what we see here is the high priest adjures, or literally demands, that Jesus answer. Jesus was not speaking to defend himself Because there was a prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7 that tells us he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. As Jesus is being accused, he could have refuted it. He could have gone and said, that's a lie, that's a lie. But instead, he sits there quietly. And when the high priest figures out that they can't get a conviction because they can't get any truthful testimony against Jesus, he turns to Jesus knowing 
what Jesus will say that will lead to a conviction. And so when he finally does speak, when he asks, are you the Christ, a word that means the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? He knows what Jesus is going to say because Jesus has been saying it for three years as he's traveled around teaching. And Jesus knows as soon as he says this, it will result in his death. But in Matthew twenty six sixty four, Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes, a sign of mourning, and he screamed, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. The high priest pronounces Jesus guilty of blasphemy, which Leviticus 24.16 says is punishable by death. It's a capital crime. And this is another violation of procedure because what the Levitical law and the processes and the civil courts and the Jewish law said is the high priest, as the chief justice, was to, first of all, speak last, never first, because they knew he could influence the entirety of the court. You remember Annas? the previous high priest who was kind of brought in behind the scenes to tell everybody how to vote. And so the Jewish high priest was never to be the first to speak, and yet we see he's the one who declares blasphemy has occurred. And um, the law also said there was to be a second vote taken a day later. If there was a capital crime where somebody was convicted of death, they, they, they said, we want to make sure that we're not condemning an innocent man. So process said you would come back and hold a second vote a day later. And you could change your vote from guilty to innocent, but you couldn't change from innocent to guilty. But as you look at the trials of Jesus, there is no follow-up the next day. The next day, Jesus is being taken to the cross and nailed to it. So again, none of these things are happening. Instead, what Matthew 26, 67 through 69 goes on to tell us is they spat in his face and they beat him with their fist and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilee. Do you remember that two weeks ago? We walked through the denial of Jesus, and we saw where that took place. So Matthew is telling us there's this whole trial that has happened before the denial of Peter. Because Matthew's talking to the Jews, and he says, you guys will find this interesting, where the Romans didn't care. Now, after this, a second trial takes place before the Sanhedrin in Matthew chapter 27, and that's what we have here in Luke 22:66 through 71, this second trial. There it says, when it was day, remember that, that's important. Now it's legal. It's during the daytime. It says, the council of elders of the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber. Do you see that? Now they're in the public courtroom. They're not in this, you know, courtyard. And they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask a question, you will not answer but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, you are, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. What a sham. The trial's already taken place. He's already been pronounced guilty. They've already decided what they're going to do. But now they have the public show. 
Now they gather in the day. They're in the courtroom. Jesus has already been sentenced to death by Annas, the previous high priest. In Matthew 26, we saw the Sanhedrin has already declared Jesus guilty. So as they question Jesus here, it's a sham. They already know what's going to be said. Jesus already knows how this ends. Their hearts have been hardened. Their minds are made up. Jesus knew that for three years. Remember, we've seen as we've gone all throughout Luke that we've seen him teaching with authority, casting out demons, doing many messianic miracles, even bringing people back from the dead. Evidence has been piling up that he is indeed the Messiah, and they've rejected it every step of the way. And so here, once again, they reject Jesus as being the Son of God, as being the promised Messiah. All that's left is to kill him. Now, there's this one little problem. You know, we're talking about legal procedure. Who was in power at this time? Romans. And Romans were the ones who could sentence somebody to death. The Jews couldn't. And so they wanted to kill Jesus, but they needed permission from Rome. And that's why these Roman trials now take place that Luke tells us about. Look at Luke 23, verses 1 through 7. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. Imagine that. Seventy of these guys in their robes and everything, they're following Jesus. They leave their courtroom. They go over to where Pilate is. It says they come before Pilate and they begin to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And you're going, well, wait a minute. Jesus just said he's a king. What's going on? Well, what's going on is Pilate, this is Pontius Pilate. He's the governor. He's the Roman governor who's over Judea. He's been appointed by Rome to kind of keep things happening. Now, he normally resided out in the provincial capital of Caesarea, down by the sea. He didn't want to be in Jerusalem with the Jews and all the drama and everything. But it's Passover, remember that? And Passover is when all the Jews would come into the city and go to the temple. This was one of the mandatory feasts that a Jewish male had to come to. So the city filled up, it flooded And because of that, they knew as all these Jews are coming in, there was a chance for unrest and riots and civil disobedience. So Rome said, we want all of our assets there in Jerusalem. So the governor comes with his bodyguards and his mini army and Herod Antipas, who we're about to see, he comes in with all of his guys and they're all there in Jerusalem. And so the Jews show up at Pilate's uh, residence and they say, we've got this guy who's guilty. Now, Did you notice the charge that they lead with? It's not blasphemy. They told Jesus, you're deserving of death because of blasphemy. But here, they don't even mention that. Uh, What happens is, they know Rome isn't interested in their religious disputes. So they come with a charge that they think is going to make the Roman governor's blood boil. And that is, Jesus says, don't pay taxes. Now, is that true? Do you remember what we saw a little while back in Luke chapter 20, verse 25? There, remember, the Jews had come and they tried to trap Jesus. One of the things they thought would just nail him to the wall is, hey, we're going to say, is it right to pay taxes to Rome? And they knew that if Jesus said, yeah, pay the Romans, then all the people would have gone against Jesus. But if he said, don't pay the Romans, then the Roman government would have come in and said, you know, we're going to get rid of you. And what Jesus did was he said, does anybody have a denarius? And they said, yeah, here it is. He holds it up and says, whose image is on here? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said, what? 
Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so as the Jews tell Pilate, Jesus says, don't pay the Romans taxes. It is a flat-out lie, and they know it. And they also know uh, that they need to build their case further. So what they do is they, they add another charge that Rome would be interested in, which is, well, Jesus says he's a king. Because the Romans were the ones who had grabbed the throne there in Israel, and anybody who came in and said he was the king would have been trying to overthrow Rome. Now, technically, they're correct that he's a king, but they're being dishonest in how they present the facts because what they're saying is he's an insurrectionist. He's, he's interested in seizing this earthly power and taking over uh, the Roman's uh, throne. But is that what Jesus said? Look at Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. He said, the son of man who will be seated at the right hand of God of power. When he says that I'm the king, it's, it's not of this little earthly squabble that the Jews and Romans were over. He says, I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. The reason Jesus came was not to seize this little plot of earthly kingdom in the Romans' day. The reason he came, we saw, was back in Luke 19.10. There Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And you'll remember earlier in Luke, we talked about this title, Son of Man. It was a very important messianic title. It's found in Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. It's a title that speaks of the promised Messiah of the Son of God, the one who would come. And when Jesus is asked by Pilate, are you a king? Uh, We find Jesus giving a more detailed response in John chapter 18. Now remember there are four Gospels. John's audience were the Greeks, and the Greeks were interested in in other things. It's why John 1-1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's why, as they say, are you a king to the Greek mind, uh, they, they had a different understanding of what all this is. So as you look at John's account, John eighteen thirty six through 38 tells us this is how Jesus responds to the question. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you are correct in saying I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Isn't that a great question? What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Because the Romans were concerned about, are you trying to take our earthly throne? And Jesus says, no. When he says, when Pilate says, what is truth? You remember what Jesus said in John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so it's why Pilate says, well, scratch the charge of not paying taxes. Scratch the charge about being a king who is a threat to Rome. Now, as you look at Luke 23, 5 through 7, it says, but they kept on insisting saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate goes, great. I can pass this hot potato on. You know, Pilate's the governor. 
But there was, uh, Herod Antipas was called the Tetrarch of Galilee, which means he was a sub-governor. It was divided into this four uh, division of power, and he was over Galilee. And so, you know, Pilate goes, well, I can send this, this guy over to this Jewish governor named Herod Antipas because he understands the religious things, and Pilate's figured out this is all a religious dispute. So he sends him over to Herod. Now look at what Luke 23, 8 through 12 tells us. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for behold, they had been enemies with each other. Remember about who Herod Antipas was? We saw him back in Luke chapter 9. And we saw him before. Herod Antipas is the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. Herod was this Jewish ruler that Rome had appointed. He was from the Herodian family, and he was doing all this stuff. John the Baptist was speaking out about his marriage to his, his family member, and she had John. She said, I want John dead. Herod kills him, and, and he thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. And Jesus has been traveling all throughout Galilee and, and doing these many miracles. Herod's been hearing all about it because he's the authority in the area. And so he had been wanting Jesus to come and see him. And, and what you find in Luke 9, 9 was it said he wanted to see him do some sign. So Jesus shows up now in front of Herod finally. And Herod goes, oh, good. I get to see the show. But remember, Jesus wasn't there to do a show. He was there to show people who the Son of God was and to save the lost. And he knows Herod doesn't care about the things of God. He killed God's forerunner, the messenger, John the Baptist. He knows Herod isn't interested in hearing whether Jesus is the Messiah. He just wants to see some great miracle show. And so what Jesus does is he's silent. And when Jesus doesn't give Herod a show, Herod shows his true colors and he joins in the mockery, including dressing Jesus up as a king before he sends him back to Pilate. And so the, the Sanhedrin's followed him over to Herod. Now this whole caravan shows back up at Pilate. Pilate comes out again and goes, oh, they're back. Look at Luke twenty three thirteen. Pilate summoned the chief priest and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, I have examined him before you. I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. So Rome's in power. They have this Jewish stuff going on. They know it's Passover, a big special day. And they say, we're going to do something to kind of show we're gracious, you know, benevolent dictators. We're going to release a prisoner, a political prisoner on your Passover. And so Herod, uh, Pilate thinks, well, here's a, here's a compromise. We've got this guy, Jesus, who I know people have been listening to and watching and crowds following him. And, and, and you know, he's not guilty. He didn't do anything. So I'll release him. And then he thinks, but to appease the religious leaders who are trying to get something done, I'll beat Jesus 
you know, nearly to death. So I can say, well, he got punished, and it'll be a win-win situation. But what happens is, uh, now let me mention something else. Do do you remember what the, the rule of evidentiary evidence was? How many witnesses did you have to have to establish the guilt of someone? It's two. Well, we've got Herod, and we've got Pilate, two witnesses who both happen to be Roman officials and judges who have both said, what about Jesus? He's innocent. This guy's not guilty. So what the law said was he, in fact, should not have been punished. He should have been released. This guy did nothing wrong. He's an innocent man. But instead, like I said, Pilate says, I'm just going to appease everybody, and it'll be a win-win. But look at verse 19. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Do you remember one of the charges against Jesus? He was an insurrectionist. And in a touch of irony, a true insurrectionist is who they want released. They say Jesus is guilty of insurrection, and then they turn around and say, Oh yeah, there's Barabbas. Let's release him. Now, if you think... That's a, a, a win for the Jews because Barabbas would be a guy trying to overthrow the Romans. Remember what an insurrectionist was. They were people who robbed and killed. They, they, they were a scourge on society. They were in the streets. Nobody was safe from people like a Barabbas. And so to go in and say, release this guy to us, they have a choice. Do we want the Prince of Peace walking around among us or do we want this MS-13 gang member type of guy walking the streets, killing people? And they say, give us Barabbas. Now, look at verses 22-23. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed him again, but he kept on calling out, saying, when, when he says, I'm going to release him, they kept calling out, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? What evil has this man done? I have found no guilt demanding of death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. Remember why Pilate was in Jerusalem to begin with? It was to keep riots from happening, and he goes, there's going to be a riot. Rome's going to say it was my fault. And so he says, in order to maintain my position, it says, Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, and, be, and he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Barabbas is set free, but it says he delivered Jesus to their will. He delivered Jesus to their will. Now, we've seen the trials that led to the death of Jesus Christ, and in them it reveals two things for us, both the wickedness of the man of, of the heart of man, and it also reveals the gracious heart of God. When men are here doing their worst, God was giving their best. This is a great example of what we read in Romans five twenty and twenty one. There it says, "Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." When we read here that Jesus was delivered over to their will, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that evil won out. That Jesus was crucified because evil men decided to get him out of the way. Jesus went to the cross to be the way. To be the way home to heaven. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one 
comes to the Father, but through me. As we saw in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. It wasn't the will of man that crucified Jesus. It was God's will that would be done. The decision was predetermined. Not by Annas, who had this secret hearing before the trial. Not by the kangaroo court in Matthew that happened at at midnight, where they declared Jesus guilty before the real trial. Jesus was declared guilty by the predetermined will of God. You can write in the margin of your Bible, Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, 22 through 23. Because what Acts 2, 22 through 23 tells us is this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. As we've looked at the laws that were broken, as we've looked at the railroading of Jesus here, I want you to remember it's because we broke God's law. All of this was happening because you and I are guilty of sin. We've all broken God's law. The Bible calls sin, uh, the word for sin literally means to miss the mark. You can illustrate it by thinking of a a target where you shoot 100 arrows and 99 hit the bullseye and just one hits right outside the center. And we would say, that's really good shooting, but an archery judge would walk up and write, you sinned. The word literally means you missed the mark. You were, you were not perfect. It's what Romans 3.23 tells us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us here has, has broken God's law, whether we lied, took a cookie, or, or you think of the hundreds of other commandments that you may have broken. We've all sinned. And because we're all sinners, there's a big problem because the Bible tells us the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the good news is it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As sinners, we deserve separation from God. We deserve to be sent away from God in a place called hell for all eternity. But God sent his son who left his throne in heaven to come to earth to ultimately go to a cross to pay the penalty of death that we owed. As these trials are taking place, Jesus could have stopped them at any point. As he told Peter in the the Garden of Gethsemane, put away your sword, Peter. I could call down legions of angels. At any point as people were blaspheming Jesus or beating him or this kangaroo course, he could have put an end to it like that, but instead he endured it. And as Isaiah 53 said, he didn't open his mouth. The sheep was led to slaughter because as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus knew he had to go and die in order to save you and me from our sins. We've all read stories of of people who gave their life to save others. There are stories of battlefield heroes who, who gave their life in order to save a buddy. We've, we've all read stories sometimes of a perfect stranger who would die to save another, like a fireman who runs into a burning building or a policeman who lays down his or her life for a complete stranger in the line of duty. There are people who die for complete strangers. Jesus went a step further. He died not just for, for strangers, but he died for enemies. 
You and I and the people in his day were enemies of God because Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrated his own love for us in this. Well, we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Sinners. Disobedient. People in rebellion. People going against God and everything he said. And yet God came and he died for you and me. As we've looked at these trials and the other things that are here, I, I, I hope you're not going to walk out of here this morning saying, wow, I learned something about court procedure or legal things, or that was kind of interesting. I hope what you walk out of here with this morning is understanding just how great God loved you and me. That while we were at our worst, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. While we were in rebellion and going against God, he left his throne to come and die for you and me. To picture what God has done for us, I want you to imagine that you're a parent, a mom or a dad who has a, a child that you love dearly, and somebody horribly murders your child. Your son or daughter is killed. And, and as your child has been taken from you by the injustice of another person, as you think about the person who killed your son or daughter, you then go out and, and search for this person. You want to find the killer, and you find the person. And now you have a choice. You could execute vengeance, and you could kill the person to get even. Or maybe you could go the next step, to show how magnanimous you are. And instead of killing the person yourself, you say, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to allow justice to be done. They're going to arrest this person. They're going to put them on trial. They're going to be found guilty. That would be justice. And then at the sentence, uh, you as the parent get to get up and give a victim statement. And your statement is, is not what we see sometimes where the person says, I want this person to die. I want the death penalty for the one killing my, my child. That's vengeance. That's even justice because the law says that. Instead, you decide to exercise mercy. And mercy would be where you say, this person stole somebody precious from me. And they deserve death, but I want you to release them. I, want, I, I just want them released. That's mercy. Now, if you went a step farther and you said, I not only want this person released, but before you do, I want you to legally adopt the person to me as my new son or daughter. The person who killed my son or daughter, I want them to come into the family and take my child's place. This person will now sleep in my son or daughter's bed. This person will now sit at the table where my son or daughter used to sit. They will become a part of my family. That would be grace. Would you do that? I see a lot of this going on out there, a lot of head shaking. Do you know that's what God does with us? He looks at us, the guilty sinner, who's responsible for the murder of his son. Because Jesus went to the cross to die to pay the penalty of death for my sins and yours. And God didn't just give us mercy. He gave us grace. Because he says, when you come to faith in my son, when you receive Jesus as your savior, you become my son. You become my daughter. I welcome you into the family. You will sit at the banquet table in heaven with me. You will be with me for all eternity. That's what God has done for us. And that's what we remember today as we come to the communion table. As we come to the communion table today, 
we see the fulfillment of what we've talked about. The trials that Jesus endured would ultimately lead him to the cross where Jesus knew that he would go to give his life, to die on a cross, to pay the penalty of death that was owed for my sins and yours. Remember Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, through Christ Jesus our Lord, Christ the Messiah. Jesus loved you and me enough to give his life so that we could have the gift of eternal life. In a moment, the elements are going to be passed and there's going to be a piece of bread. It represents the body of Jesus. And there will be a cup that represents his blood that was shed for you and me. And as those elements are passed, I want you to think about what God has done for you. You may be a person who's here this morning who's never accepted Jesus as your Savior. You've been trying to do it your way. You've been thinking you can be good enough to get to God. Or maybe you've just said, I, I, just, I, don't, I, I just can't accept a God who says there's only one way to heaven. He didn't just say there was one way to heaven. He provided the way to heaven. That's how loving he is for you. He gave his life to cover the penalty of death that you and I owed for our sins. And so if you're here this morning and you recognize who Jesus is and what he did for you, and you're ready to turn from your sin and to him to be your savior, to accept his death and your place as your payment, then in a moment as the elements are passed, I want you to take the bread and say to God, God, I accept your son as my savior. To take the cup, understanding that that represents his blood that was shed to wash away your sins. As you take those elements, say to God, thank you. Thank you for your great gift of new and eternal life. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For the rest of us who have already accepted Jesus, this is a time for us to remember as well what he did for us, how much he loved us, how he's willing to endure all the injustices we've talked about today and the injustices we're going to see in the weeks ahead as we go through the crucifixion of Christ. That's how much he loved you and me. Now, as the elements are passed in a moment, I want to give a set of instructions here because things are going to be different today in communion than what you've normally experienced at Wayside. Uh, Many of you know there's a lot of flu and strep and other things going around, and you may be worried about cross-contamination from people. And so one of the things that we are changing in the way we do communion is Rather than passing a plate with a bunch of uh, bread where everybody's kind of grabbing and touching, uh, when the elements are passed, you're going to reach in, and as you take the cup, there are actually two cups together. Do you see this? So there is a bread in the bottom cup, and there is the juice in the top cup. So there won't be two plates passing. You won't be taking the bread and then getting the cup. And I know there are a number of people here who uh, get the gluten-free bread that is out in the foyer. If you're somebody who can't have gluten and you're not aware of it, we provide gluten-free crackers outside. I'm sorry to make this a commercial, but you need to understand how this works. So if you're somebody who's already gotten your gluten-free cracker out there, please take both cups. Don't leave the one saying, well, I'm not going to take that because the next person may just get the cracker and not the cup. So take both. You can either leave the cracker in the pew at the end or you can give it to your friend and say, you get two today, uh, whatever you'd like to do. But what I want you to do is to take both cups 
and then you'll separate them. Try not to spill on yourself as you separate them. And then when we take the bread, you'll just do it this way, and then you'll take the cup. Is everybody with me? If you need to help your friend next to you, you can kind of help them as this happens. Uh, but this will, this will help us uh, be more uh, disease-resistant, and it will probably actually speed up the process as well for the future. So take two cups. Now let's come back to what Jesus did for us. As you take these elements, I want you to remember what they're for. Here you see on the front of the table, this do in remembrance of me. Remember as we looked at the Passover last communion four weeks ago, we talked about where communion came from. Remember that in the Passover Seder, there was that piece of matzah that was striped and pierced. And Isaiah 53 tells us, by his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. Remember that that matzah was broken. It was wrapped in linen, put away in something called the alphicomen, and it was set aside. And at the end of the meal, it was brought back, taken out, and shared. And that's when Jesus said, this is my body that is given for you. We saw there were five cups in the Passover, the cup of Elijah at the end, and then four other cups. And when he picked up the cup called the cup of redemption, it was that cup where Jesus said, this is the cup of my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant that will be shed for you. It was a special cup that pointed to what Jesus was going to do. Hebrews tells us there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And as Jesus shed his blood on the cross, it was to pay that penalty of death that you and I owed for our sins. That's what communion represents. So as the elements are passed, I want you to take both cups, hold them. You can separate them to be ready, but we'll take communion together in a moment. This is the time for us to examine ourselves, to confess our sins, to prepare our hearts. This is a table that is open to all who are believers in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Wayside. Just a person who has received Jesus as your Savior. Will you service the elements, please? Take and hold these, and we'll take them together in a moment. So here we hold a piece of bread. And what it represents is the one who is called the bread of life, Jesus Christ. The one who was born in Bethlehem, what literally means the house of bread. And he came to give his life in order to give to us the gift of eternal life. The body of Jesus seated in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup. The cup of redemption. Where Jesus shed his blood to wash away your sins and mine. As Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And the one that John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world went to the cross to give his life for you and me so that we could have the gift of eternal life. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Join me as we pray, please. God, thank you for your great love. Love that was demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, you, Jesus, died for us. You willingly went to the cross to give your life so that we could have the gift of eternal life. We thank you for providing the way home We thank you for God loving us 
and covering our sin with your grace, where we as men and women, boys and girls, can be adopted as sons and daughters of yours, where we get to spend eternity with you in heaven as those who have received the gift of grace and new life through Jesus our Savior. We thank you for this, and as messengers of grace, may we be messengers of the good news of the gospel as we leave today, as we go and share the good news with the world around us. In Jesus' precious name we pray and thank you. Amen.